Hey listeners, today's episode deals with topics of sexual assault, incest, and gun violence. We wanted to notify our listeners who may experience trauma related to these topics ahead of the episode, and to let you know that resources are listed in the description. Thanks for listening. In this true crime law and order podcast, the episodes are presented by two separate yet equally ridiculous individuals, one who researches the actual crime and the other who recaps the episode. These are their stories. What is up? Still new parents of a puppy. We are just getting out of chicken pox dumb. Our house was a sick bed for a while. So that's what's up with us. How is raising a new child going? Raising a new child is so rewarding. <laughs> is that it's, intense sarcasm? <laughs> it's like it's a, a it dipped in sarcasm. Um, it's great. It's really it is really rewarding. Ultimately, it's the best. That little boy Harrison is just the sweetest, cutest thing when he's being sweet and cute. But when mm-hmm. he's not, he is just such a handful. Whew, it is. A lot, a lot, a lot. Anyone out there who owns a small breed of dog, like a dachshund or maybe a corgi or beagle, this is just not news to you, but they are really energetic. (laughs) Is he he really energetic? Oh my God. He gets like the zoomies just from going potty sometimes. He comes inside. He's like flying all over the house. We had to, oh my God, forget it. We've had to block off under the couch because he's small enough to fit under there still. (laughs) and like the efforts we've gone to the creative efforts to figure out things that will actually keep him (laughs) from going under the couch i'm very proud of us (laughs) have you had to like get like two by fours and kind of like prop them up under there or something i was literally looking up like where i can buy pallet pieces (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) but we found enough household things like free weights and yoga mats and like a piece of office equipment I found like all this weird shit under the couch right now <laughs> like a computer monitor stuck under there <laughs> it's like a computer monitor like booster oh okay mm-hmm. <laughs> oh man and he still he still manages we have a large computer box blocking him off from falling down the stairs we have oh my lord every large box we can find that we haven't thrown out is just makeshift barriers for him little buddy Little buddy, how's Chess? She is also a a full rapscallion. She (laughs) is right now really into just jumping. Like I'll be laying on the couch and she'll jump up, jump on my chest, give me some kisses, lick my face, stand on my (laughs) neck, and then jump off all within the span of like 10 and a half seconds. Mm -hmm. And that happens approximately every 14 and a half seconds. Uh, (laughs) And, you know, then she'll run around digging the yard. I feel like my entire house is covered in a very fine layer of dirt Mm -hmm. from her going outside, getting her paws dirty, and running around inside. Can relate, especially after the rain. Oh, yeah. Forget it. Oof. Do you have any recommendations or or special announcements or anything of that sort? (laughs) (laughs) Um, That's my special announcement, I got it. (laughs) I have been listening to a couple of new podcasts lately that I do want to recommend that I have been listening to lately. One is called Sinisterhood. Oh, and have we, you heard it? We or, love that podcast. Yeah, I just started listening to it. It's good. Oh, they are so good. I actually, um, real, my quick aside, not to take away from your thing, is we, when we were developing this podcast, I reached out to the hosts of Sinisterhood um, via email 
just to say like, hey, we're developing a new podcast and just wanted some advice. I think it might have even been way back when we were doing Cool Story. Oh, um, yeah? Yeah, because Davey found Sinisterhood and introduced me to it. And they actually responded and gave us some great ideas and feedback about how to start. So shout out to oh, Sinisterhood. Nice. I love, I'm so glad you're listening. Oh, thanks, Sinisterhood, for giving us advice that yeah. Matt apparently never relayed to me. <laughs> it was in our shared email. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so they're great. I like them. I feel like their vibe is kind of similar to ours mm-hmm. in a lot of ways where it's kind of, you know, two friends having a conversation about a case or, a, you know, whatever it is. So shout out to Sinisterhood. If you aren't listening to them, I recommend them. Totally. And... The second one that I wanted to recommend, I've only listened to about five or six episodes so far, so it's a recommendation for those four, first five or six episodes. <laughs> if it goes off the rails, uh, don't... Don't uh, don't blame us. <laughs> don't blame me. <laughs> uh, but it's a podcast called What Did You Do? And it's a, it's a true crime podcast. It's two friends having a conversation with each other. Um, they are both people of color. One of them, I believe, is queer. And they are both social workers. And so they have a lot of insights into, again, the criminal justice system and to the ways that, uh, you know, sort of crime happens and particularly around, you know, social services and things like that. So it they're another really interesting podcast. They, I believe, are maybe in Texas. Oh, I know the Sinisterhood is in Texas. These, uh, the What Did You Do podcast, they're somewhere in the South, mm-hmm. I believe, and have just really interesting insights and kind of fun banter. So I recommend them as well. Again, it's called What Did You Do? That sounds great. I've never heard of it. They do the first few episodes that I listened to. It was like a single case. And then the next like three or four episodes were continuations of another case because they were like, there's too much to talk about. Let's do another episode about this. And then like kept going with the story. Can relate. Yeah. So those are my two recommendations. Nice. I would like to echo your recommendation from last week. Again, the Let's Not Meet podcast. I haven't started it. I haven't started it yet, but I'm going to this week. I've decided because uh, a friend of mine, friend of the podcast, uh, I've recommended his music before. He goes under scary hours for his music. His name is Ryan doing great things. Check him out. But he definitely texted me after our last episodes have aired and is like, Matt, I have recommended to you. Let's not meet many (laughs) times before. What are you doing? (laughs) Why are you not listening? Okay. So So, now that your other friend recommends it, you're going to listen to it. I see how it is. Oh my God. I love that. What are we, eight? Um, (laughs) No, I'm just echoing that uh, more people out there who listen to this podcast are big fans of this other podcast. So if you like this, I'm sure Let's Not Meet is probably in your in your vein too. And I will be probably. one of those people. I promise I will do it. <laughs> yeah. Should we get into this week's episode? I definitely think we should get into it. I can't wait to hear your, uh, your take on it. Okay. So Matt and I, for the listeners, Matt and I had like a little production meeting <laughs> last, last time after we finished <laughs> recording our last episode where Matt told me that this was a pretty big crime. And so what we decided was I, uh, I was going to try to recap the Law & Order episode a little bit more quickly so that we had some time to focus more on the case. So that's, so my notes this time are more like high level kind of notes and more like thematic notes than, than like sort of scene by scene, like we typically do with the episodes. So if you end up liking this better, 
let us know. Yeah, and definitely. Maybe we'll do that permanently. So please, uh, anytime you feel like it, feel free to send us an email, send us an Instagram or, or Twitter message, and also don't forget to rate, review, subscribe. The best thing you can do for uh, smaller podcasts or newer podcasts is to review them and to tell other people to listen to them. So if you haven't done that for us and you're still listening, please, please, please do that. That would be awesome. Yeah, honestly, it would be pretty monumental. And I know it seems like a pain in the butt to do that kind of thing sometimes. Like, oh, I got to write a review. And I could relate because... <laughs> I agonize these days over even putting up a Facebook post, <laughs> just saying like, "Hey, what's going on, Honestly. world?" <laughs> but yeah, it would be it would be huge for us if you if you did that. And uh, as far as the true crime goes, when when I get into it, I have some some ideas of how we could expand on it in the future, possibly. So stay tuned. And if you're somebody who's like on true crime reddits and things like that, and you see people ask like, "What's a true crime show you would recommend?" Feel free to suggest ours. So yeah, you gotta you gotta ask for things you want, and I think that's what we gotta do. You gotta manifest these things. I watched this. Oh, here's a random recommendation. Did you watch The Secret? <laughs> yeah, I watched The Secret. Is that even a movie too, or is it just the book? I don't know. Probably. Yeah, not. I have my like little vision board. <laughs> I remember. Oh, what is the name of this artist? Uh, they're the lead singer of. I'm going to look it up while I'm while I'm talking about this so I can get their name right. And but anyway, she did a TED talk and it was a few years back and it was talking about how she funded her whole album and subsequent tour on the generosity of fans and just people along the road. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. But she talks about like the idea of how shameful people are about asking for help or for asking people to listen to them when you're a maker of some sort, like saying to your like the idea of embracing that you have a fan even and, and asking them to do something for you is so like taboo of a thought and scary of a thought which i could totally agree but she Uh always talked she talked about this whole thing was her asking her her fans and people along the way to help out help them stay for the night help them get the word out and it was completely successful and there was no Mm. backlash from the fan like that is what you got to do in life right you got to figure out who you got to figure out a way to be genuine and honest and ask for what you want well, yeah. I mean, it's it's that whole thing. It's like why I think the, one of the most toxic elements of any relationship, whether it's like friends, but particularly like romantic relationships, is when one person expects the other piece, person to read their mind about what they need or what they want or what's upsetting them. And it's just so counterproductive and toxic. And so I, I, it makes total sense to ask for what you want and tell people what you need because then they don't have to guess and you don't get mad. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, I, um, I looked her up. It's Amanda Palmer from. She has her own music, of course, by herself. But she's from the Dresden Dolls, and oh, okay. uh, the TED Talk is called the pa- the Art of Asking, and it's from 2013. I'll have to go watch that. Yeah. I, now I'm gonna. Re- I haven't seen it in a long time. Clearly, from how uh, comprehensive my recommendation was, uh-huh. <laughs> but it it definitely stuck with me enough for me to be able to Google it like that real quick. So I'm gonna check it out again too. All right, so here we go. Here we go. Are here we, we go. go. I'm so ready. Okay. So this is season one, episode 19 of Law and Order, and it is called Serpent's Tooth. And I still don't know why it's called that. Oh, it's a novel by Singaporean writer Catherine Lim, taken from a quote from uh, Shakespeare's King Lear, Sharper Than a Serpent's Tooth. 
it is to have a thankless child. Okay, okay, okay. okay. So it's a reference to like ungrateful children, basically. Okay, that makes sense. Okay. All right, so Matthew, are are you keeping track? Because this episode opens with beat cops. And I think I've I've already gotten there, haven't I? I, Okay, let me look back. I have been keeping track. Okay, so your prediction was uh, out of the next 15 episodes, you would have three beat cop beginnings, right? I thought I said five. I thought I said one third of them will be beat cop beginnings. Oh, right. One third of the next 15 episodes. Okay, got it. So as of episode 16, you had two out of two out of the three episodes had had it. Mushrooms began without beat cops. Correct. The next one, I don't know if you get the full point or not. I get the full point. Okay, fine. I'll give you (laughs) I'll give you the full point. But if I'm hoping you can surpass five then (laughs) just to make myself feel better. Um, So this would be four out of out of uh, your goal of five. And I think I have like 10 more episodes to go. You have a, you have a good like nine or 10 to go and you still have to get another dog discovery. So that one might. <gasps> oh yeah. yeah. A dog discovery. That one's a little rarer, but I think it'll happen. I think we have a chance. Well, this episode opens with beat cops and basically they're having this conversation out in the cold. One of them keeps blowing his nose. They're talking about how I swear, I almost think he says a line like, my nards are freezing. Like, I, I feel like he says the word nards, but maybe I'm just thinking of how ridiculous the, the conversation was. It's essentially that. So they're, they're talking and suddenly they hear an alarm go off at one of the neighboring apartments and some young white guy runs out kind of dressed early 90s preppy and sell, says like, help, help, my parents have been shot. And they run over to the apartment and we cut to Logan and Grievy arriving and they're searching the apartment and they find upstairs. And this is like a huge, like mansion-y type place. Like it's, it seems like there's this multiple story spiral staircase in this apartment in New York? Question mark? It's, it's grand. It's a huge inside. It's a huge, like, um, it's huge. Yeah. It looks pretty massive. I guess I just like, I know that there are really large apartments in New York, but I just feel like I'm not used to thinking of, of buildings that grand in New York, because typically what we see are tiny apartments. Anytime we see representation of like apartments in New York. So it's weird for me to see what looks like the inside of a mansion in New York. So they're in this huge mansion apartment and find this room full of guns upstairs oh by the way the mom's like dead on the stairs with two oh by the way (laughs) (laughs) by the way on the way to find some guns they have to step over this dead lady or whatever i should i I kind of buried the lead here but both the mom and dad have been shot i guess the help help my parents have been shot i am i was thinking that but anyway both the parents are dead and they find this room full of guns upstairs one of the guns has been fired recently and the somehow the police like do ballistics work on the scene and they're like this is the gun it's definitely this one that killed him which is weird to me because I feel like in other episodes, they're like, oh, gosh, you know, we'll never be able to match ballistics on this. And this cop, it, it was like watching an episode of Monk or something. It was like a psychic detective <laughs> who knew that it was the gun. Shout out Monk, Santa Barbara. Is that Santa Barbara? Is it set in Santa Barbara? I believe it's set in Santa Barbara, but not actually filmed in Santa Barbara. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. I also really can't stand that actor. Uh, that's a, a, a controversial yet brave <laughs> <laughs> opinion. 
I do not like that actor. Oh, What's his name? I don't know his name, but I've never actually watched an episode of Monk. Uh, my little sister used to love that show. I think my dad used to like it too. Tony Shalhoub or Tony Shalhoub. Tony Shalhoub. Yeah. What do you, he, what do you don't like him? Why don't you like him? I, I don't like the sound. of It's a, a purely idiosyncratic thing. I do not like the sound of his voice. There's something about it that really bothers me. I don't know. He's also on The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, which I do think is really good, but I really dislike the scenes with him in it. Oh, okay. I haven't watched that yet. There's another recommendation for you. The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. If you haven't watched it, it's pretty good. I've heard really good things about it, so... Except for except for this guy. <laughs> <laughs> So Logan and Grievy also see this photo of the family together, and they they say the family that kills together, and the implication is, I don't know, stays together. It's a, a hunting photo of the two sons and the dad, and they're holding a, a dead duck, I think. Just, con- just there. Oh, look, just what we need, a picture of all of them holding guns. Exactly. And so then we get the title sequence. I begin and master the practice of the violin and have performed in concert halls across the world. And then the title sequence ends and we get back to the episode. (laughs) I'm so proud of you. (laughs) Thank you. Your performance was so good. (laughs) So the, the older brother of the of the family arrives to the crime scene and he hugs his brother and they start crying and they both are saying she wasn't supposed to be home about their mother. And they keep doing it in this way. The minute they said that I was like, Oh, this is weirdly suspicious. Mm. Like she wasn't supposed to be home, not our mom. And they're, they both seem completely apathetic about the fact that their dad is dead, but Hey, so grieve, they take him down to the station and both Logan and grievy kind of, are like casually interviewing them, but are, you know, sort of like repeating questions with slight variations to the question to um, to try to like catch them in the lie. Because the implication usually is like, if somebody's killed, you know, the first person would be the spouse, then immediate family members, and then, you know, maybe business partners or things like that. So they immediately sort of suspect the kids, at least Grievy does. Even if they weren't related, I think the people who come upon the bodies are always prime suspects too, so. Oh, true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially if it's, like, you bring other people into it to, like, discover it together. Exactly. Kind of that's, which was that's pretty common. Also well, very common, awkwardly. I say. Yeah. <laughs> it happens all the time. It's just a Tuesday. <laughs> so, by the way, while they're interviewing the brothers, the younger brother has the creepiest baby voice. He keeps doing this, like, really... I think they gave the actor like the direction of like be soft spoken and timid. And he took that to be like, let me do almost a voice where it's like a, a person who would like call and say inappropriate things to random phone numbers. Like a, what do you call that? A prank caller? <laughs> a prank caller, but so like somebody who says like sexual things and is kind of creepy. It's very much that voice. It's almost like the weepy voice killer. You know, the <gasps> weepy voice killer. Oh my God, of course. Okay, he his voice sounds like that. So it is it's not pleasant to listen to him. Thankfully he doesn't talk a lot, <sighs> which is great for me. Yeah, I agree. So they decide to, you know, they're running tests on the gun. They also ask the brothers to do a like paraffin wax gun residue test on their hands. The boys get pissed because they, you know, think that how dare you think we killed our parents? We would never hurt our mother. Mm-hmm. And so they think either these boys are innocent or they're just well rehearsed. By the way, I think they actually reference the real case in this episode. Like they're like, blah, 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 that case in Los Angeles. 
Oh, really? Which I'm pretty sure your case is in Southern California, right? It is, yeah. Okay. I think they referenced it on the episode. Oh. So Ballistics references that, yes, it's the gun. The prints on the gun match the younger brother, Gregory. But he was out skeet shooting that day. And so with that gun, which and he has an alibi for that. So they're sort of like, okay, this is weird. That's the gun that killed him. Brother's, you know, younger son's prints, blah, blah, blah. But there's an alibi. Grievy's fully convinced it's the son's. Logan is much less convinced. Mm-hmm. We get an interview with the housekeeper, um, who, by the way, is Bunny McDougal from Sex and the City. And she is not wild about the father. She says that he was kind of a dick and he used to yell a lot. And they also go and interview the dad's business partner to see, to kind of like rule him out as a suspect. And what they learn is essentially that um, if the father were to die, the sons would inherit this multi-million dollar business. The business partner would just get the remaining 10% that he has in equity in the company. Mm-hmm. It adds credibility to the argument that the boys did it because they're going to inher- inherit this like $10 million company. Uh, must be nice. Honestly. So <laughs> they go and interview... I said they are interviewing the business partner, and he mentions a time where the father had his jaw broken about a year and a half ago. So they go to talk to the family doctor about what happened there. And essentially what we learn is that the older brother, or the older son rather, broke his father's jaw. And so they go to talk to the sons about it, and they're like, what's going on here? You know, blah, blah, blah. And essentially they sort of learn from the older brother that he came home drunk one day and he broke his dad's jaw and but he says i never would have done anything to my mother and the younger brother you know says that his his older brother regretted that happening and tells them tells the police you really think we'd kill our own mother so again they keep talking about how they wouldn't kill their mom but say nothing about the dad mhm and also i thought that that was a a strange way they discovered that as well the um yeah the business partner. Yeah. The bi- talking about his jaw wired shut. Exactly. Like randomly, like, oh, just came up in conversation, like, oh, wait, did you just say his yeah. jaw got wired shut? Yeah. Um, a little, you know, luck of the draw. Yes, very much. So they they interview the housekeeper again, and she talks about how the dad was actually really abusive and how Nick, the older boy, got the worst of it. He beat him almost every day. And um, until one day when he was 16 and he fought back and the dad never hit him again, but he kept beating the younger son. One time, the time of the jaw-breaking incident, the older brother walked in and the dad had been hitting his younger brother with a cane, and that's when he hit his father in the jaw and broke his jaw. Yeesh. So evidence is piling up that the boys did it because they've got this inheritance thing, they've got the abusive dad thing— Blah, blah, blah. They've got a history of the older brother, um, you know, fighting back and hitting his dad. So they're really suspecting the kids at this point. They go to the apartment and they see that the boys are already having like the blood steam cleaned out of the carpets and prepping the house for sale. And so they're thinking like, okay, this is really suspicious. Your parents just died and you're like prepping your house for sale. But honestly, like if I lived in the house where my parents had been killed, I. I honestly would probably try to sell that pretty quickly too. Of course. I wouldn't want to I wouldn't want to live there. Yeah. That's like that's like asking a hostage who's rescued from a hostage situation to now like inhabit the area where they were held prisoner. 
Also true. Right. Like, not only were your parents killed there, but also it's the house where your dad bit, beat the shit out of you for all your life. Right? Ugh. Logan and Grevy are just wandering around this mansion, not... There's no warrant. They're not talking to anybody who lives there. And they just start going through and opening the mail, which... They're like, they make this comment about how dead people's mail is admissible in court, but I I don't really think you're supposed to just go into houses and open people's mail if you don't have a search warrant. So. Yeah, they kind of just like, they ask the yeah. question like, oh, does dead people's mail? And they're like, yeah. mm, we'll figure it out later. <laughs> so at this point, Stone is, we get, we're kind of pulling in the, the order side. So Stone comes in and says, like, give me an arrest. Like, we've got to do something. The The press is getting wind of this. We're getting pressure to make an arrest. Um, and he says, like, I think we can arrest the sons. Like, we've got motive, you know, inheriting the money and defense against abuse. And also we've got means. Like, they had access to the weapons. So we've got motive and means. Go arrest them. So they arrest them as they're literally playing a game of racquetball. Like, the two sons... <laughs> Are like I just it's one of those things where it's like did you pick the sport that only the wealthiest of people play? Like, Honestly, they might as well have been on like a uh, a um, croquet a polo a polo oh. no like a polo field with like really <laughs> fancy horses and shit. I was thinking croquet with like big hats. <laughs> oh yeah yeah yeah. Okay, so they arrest them. The younger boy starts crying and. What they don't really understand, meaning they, meaning Stone and Robinette, they don't really understand how they killed the mother. Uh, they play the 911 phone call and they hear like the boy crying and, you know, my mom's been killed, blah, blah, blah. And Logan says that nobody is this good of an actor. So they're thinking, they're starting to kind of like walk back. Did the boys really do this? So Stone is kind of directed to go and clear the business partner just to make sure that there's no, that the defense can't introduce another suspect into the trial and cast reasonable doubt on the case. So they, they're like, okay, we're pretty sure the boys still did it, but let's go clear all the other potential suspects so that there's no reasonable doubt in this case. Well, long story short, and I do mean long story <laughs> short, because it is a lot about financial transactions and banks and immigration and the Russian KGB in a way that is, like, really boring. It's like, hey, let's talk about something fascinating like the KGB, but let's talk about bank statements. I'm like, let's so, do it through the most boring way possible. <laughs> I'm so glad you said that because I couldn't possibly agree with you more. I was so confused by the bank statement conversation yeah and the, yeah. the bringing up the kgb was so bizarre and out of nowhere very, to me and very weird like you said an interesting topic described in the most like boring minutiae everyday mundane kind of way i'm so glad you said that because i literally could not tell you a single part about the kgb connection that makes any sense to me yeah at this point, they, they're, you know, trying to clear the business partner, but essentially what they end up finding is that the business partner, there's some kind of, like, loophole in the law where if the boys are implicated in the murder, then all of the business reverts to the business partner. So they're like, oh, fuck, we actually have not only this suspect, but there's a really clear motive with him as well. So they check... 
the local parking garages around the the mansion the night of the murder, and they find that the business partner was plucked blocked parked (laughs) two blocks away at the time of the shooting so they're like fuck he was literally two blocks away he and he has so he also has means and motive so they trace the bullets that they found and find out that the and go to the gun shop where the bullets were sold and they track the bullets to a man named sasha osinski who was the business partner's alibi, the initial alibi that they got when they were investigating him the first time. So they're like, okay, turns out we thought it was the sons. Actually, we now think it's the business partner. They release the sons, arrest the business partner, and bring him into court and charge him with murder in the second degree. By the way, this actor is somebody that I fully recognize the minute I saw him. Okay. He, uh, he... (laughs) I recognized him, but I couldn't place him. Um, He is somebody who has this hair that is, it's like if you took hair and made it into a helmet, and then you took those infomercial spray, hair spray paints from like the the 90s for like thinning hair and like spray painted it that like fake brown that is like a has like a little bit of that purple tone to it (laughs) yes you know what i mean like it's such it's not it's a completely inhuman color and clearly somebody whose hair is either like thinning or it's going gray and he wants to like keep his natural color anyway who is he looked really i don't know who it is but he looked actually very familiar to me so his name is jonathan hadaray h-a-d-a-r-y and he is somebody who you would recognize on Veep if you watched Veep. He was Senator Sherman Tans. Oh. Or no, maybe not Senator. He was a really, really rich, scummy businessman on Veep. Okay. He was also in an episode of, of uh, Russian Doll, that uh, TV oh, show I with... I loved that. Mm, what's her name? Oh, uh, Natasha Leone. Natasha Leone, thank you. Mm-hmm. Yes. So he played a bit part in that. But I think his most... probably prominent role was the recurring character on Veep. They're bringing this Sasha Osinski to the trial um, and they have him testify. And he says that Petrovich, the business partner, asked him to lie to the police about where he was that night. And he said that uh, Petrovich, the business partner, had told him that he was going to, quote, take care of Mr. Harmon for good. And so then we get a few more kind of unnecessary scenes, but ultimately it, uh, Mr. Petrovich is found guilty of killing the Jarman parents and the boys are acquitted and the episode ends with the housekeeper hugging the boys and saying thank you to Mr. Stone. And that is the condensed version of that episode. Well done. Pretty fast, right? That was great. Yeah, that was very Thanks. good. Okay, great. Could have never done that. <laughs> So I know what your crime is because the minute I read the description, I was like, I know what this crime is, Mm -hmm. but do you want to introduce it before I tell my really short little story about it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, I mean, if you know anything about true crime and this episode is about, you know, two boys being accused of murdering their parents, it's likely that you already have guessed that this is inspired by the murders of Jose and Mary or Kitty Menendez and the subsequent mm-hmm. trial of Lyle and Eric Menendez, their sons. Yes. And oh, is it time for my story now? I think so, right? Okay. I mean, that's the introduction. That's, what, that's where we're at. You tell well, me. I just, okay, great. So when we were 
talking about creating this podcast, we threw around a few different structures. And originally, we were going going to pick kind of random cases to talk about. And the we talked about like, starting with a case that is one of the sort of like first ones that we remember. Mm. And the Menendez brothers were that case for me. Like they were one of the, them and like the OJ Simpson trial were kind of like the two cases that I remember hearing about, like being too young to really like know everything, but hearing enough about it in media that I had a sense of what was going on. So I was like, oh, the minute I saw the description for this episode, I was like, Menendez brothers. Oh, yeah. So anyway, that's this so was true. almost going to be the story that I was going to tell you in an alternate universe where we did a different podcast. That's true. I forgot about that. And you know, so anyway. what's funny about you saying that is that from that question, I would have not even thought of the Menendez brothers at the time. Oh, really? Um, OJ Simpson, for sure, for sure, was one of the first yeah. ones. And one of the ones I remember latching on to early on was Diane Downs. I don't think I know that. You do. Well, I know the name. Oh, I know the name. You do. But... You've you've definitely at least heard the My Favorite Murder on it if you've not seen something on it. It's the woman who's accused of uh, killing her children and then saying that she got carjacked. Oh. And she does like is the, she the one... interviews. Does she celebrate? Like, does she? Is that the one where they spray silly string yes. on a child's yes, grave? Yes, it is. Oh, yes, God. Is. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. that one, I remember a lot of coverage on it. Not Maybe not at, at the time. I have no idea what year it happened. But when I was young, I remember watching things about it on TV and being, like, fascinated. That's so interesting. I That one literally never made it on my radar at all. But I know the case now that you bring it up, yeah, obviously. Yeah, probably because I watched a lot of, like, Lifetime and Television mm. for Women, as they <laughs> called it back then, and all of the... <laughs> all of the. Isn't it still called Lifetime Television for Women? I think they changed it. I think it's, like, Your Life, Your Time, or some something like, you know, something <laughs> so, menstrual Something really clever. Thing. Yeah. <laughs> lifetime. Your Life, Your Time. <laughs> we were watching... Um, what were we watching last night? We were watching this old cartoon that we found um, on Cartoon Network. Davey knows the name of it. Something like uh, The Adventures of Someone in Grim. It's like a Grim Reaper and like a little girl. and uh, like. Oh, yeah. I, it's really cutely animated. Yeah. And I think I've seen pieces of it, but I don't think I've ever watched it. <laughs> we were thing. watching it yesterday, uh, late at night before bed. We wanted something like light. And... In the episode, they're they were parodying like TV shows. So there's a scene uh-huh. where they're watching it like the TV, and it's a soap opera called uh, <laughs> "Love Problems." <laughs> and the like quick clip they show of it is the guy goes, "They're like this week on Love Problems," and he goes, "I love you, but I have a problem." <laughs> That's it. <laughs> so accurate to how TV I shows love are. It. Yes. That's like a Lifetime movie right there. Um, But yeah, the reason I brought this whole thing up was because when we were doing, when I was doing the research for this and I saw how close in time it happened to the OJ trial, Uh I was like, holy crap. I totally remember all about this case when I was young, like a lot, a lot, a lot. And I would have never, it would have never registered, but I guess that's kind of the point in, you'll see in my um, coverage of it. Yeah. Okay. I'm ready. Okay, so, um, like I said, it's a large case, and, you know, obviously in this one episode, we're not going to be able to get to, like, every aspect and every point of view and whatnot, but ultimately, like, the reason this case has had such a stamp in the collective brains of all of us, and like we both said, it's an early-on memory for us with true crime, um, is because of how sensationalized it was at the time, and it's been ultimately, like, a big criticism of this case and the true crime community at times in general the whole like sensationalizing crimes 
Yeah. And I think just to put to put something out there, I think it's important to distinguish for people that have a strong interest in true crime that it's not usually out of a desire to like exploit people or glorify killers or you know turn the victims and survivors of crimes into like characterizations and tropes and things like that. Like I think some right. people think about it. Um, it's really I think if this podcast is any indication, it's out of human interest, I think, most of the time. You yes. know, it's like understanding one another and the world around us. And f- for me, it's like I love digging into the way um, people experience the world around them and each other and like how that informs how they like choose to act and the things they might do. And I think it helps me be I think it helps me be more careful and more empathetic um, and prepared by things and and more outraged by things, I guess. Hey, Matt, I don't want to take us on a total tangent, but have you watched the Netflix documentary series Don't Fuck With Cats? Oh my god, yes. Okay, I have a really, really creepy theory to share with everyone. So I am on true crime subreddits and like a few different ones where they're like some are about podcasts, some are just about true crime generally. And I think that Luca Magnata has access to the internet wherever he is and is posting on the true crime subreddits because there were like several posts in a row, uh, like on different reddits, talking about Luca Magnata was framed, like he's this like beautiful model, how dare people think he's this killer, and it's very much in this sort of like self-aggrandizing like tone that he talked about himself in. Yeah. And and I even I was like noticing these posts and I was like this is weird. Like a a, a random person who watched this show would not be writing this. And then somebody commented on one of them saying like like Luca, we know this is you accessing the internet from prison or whatever. And I just got so creeped out in that moment that he was like still continuing this really intense, like disconnection from reality and like posting things about himself on, on these Reddit. So anyway, Oh wow. I just wanted to share that, that I thought that that was really creepy. (laughs) I would say, keep looking into that because I'm really curious. That's so fascinating. It's like the I'll be gone in the dark or I'll be lost. I forget what it's called. I'll be gone. I'll be gone in the dark. Yeah. The early episodes, talk about how you know michelle mcnamara was on these like true crime message boards that she found not knowing they existed because she was just doing her own blog and seeing like the interest in the the east area rapists as he was known at the time Uh and she was able to like through other people's conversations about the east area rapist on the message boards she was able to use her own information and make connections between him and the other names he was going under at that time. And it really happened because of things she was reading on the internet. And like, Ooh. so, I mean, this, hey, this could be something. Maybe I'm the next Michelle McNamara. <laughs> oh, imagine. No. Uh, okay. Okay. Sorry. No, Go that's ahead. good. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, just in that vein, I just wanted to make a comment about that because it's definitely something that gets talked about a lot in this case. I don't talk about it in my notes about it, but one of the the big criticisms that happens about this case afterwards is the way the media sensationalized it, the way people sort of latched on to the Menendez brothers and like viewed how they viewed them. And mm-hmm. so um, another piece of research that I didn't know was research until <laughs> after doing the, this case <laughs> was Davey and I watched natural born killers the other day. Have you ever seen that? I don't think so. No, it, it's in our, our jar of like movies we wanted to see that we haven't, and we, we drew it the other day randomly. And so we watched it, and Natural Born Killers plays very heavily into the criticism of how the media 
creates household names out of violent criminals. Oh, yeah. And it is always referenced as um, being inspired partially by the Menendez brothers' trial. And mm. I think they even put clips of the Menendez brothers' trial in the, in the movie. Interesting. Yeah, so it was weird because we just watched that a few days ago. And when I read that, I was like, oh my God, extra piece of research. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I just wanted to mention that because I, I don't mention it throughout the case and I think it's important. So, And I could say from my experience, like we said, we remember this crime when we were little. Yeah. I remember this murder of Jose and Mary Menendez was very mm-hmm. normal conversation. Oh yeah, It wasn't totally. emotional or sad. It was like a joke. Oh yeah, totally. I was just going to say... One of the reasons I think I remember this case so strongly is because I think that, you know, you'll talk about it, but I think, like, there were so many references to, like, pulling a Menendez uh, and, like, kids, like, hurting their parents or killing their parents or whatever. And it just became this, like, like, it it became sort of a joke in a lot of ways that I think is a problem. Yeah. You'll, I'm sure you'll talk more about that. Yeah, I agree that I, I literally looked, it was like a childhood taunt. Like pulling a Menendez and like, oh, what are you going to do? We like the Menendez brothers. And I remember learning more about this case from SNL than I did from the news. (laughs) The sources I used, as I said, was the the movie Natural Born Killers. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Wikipedia, the Law and Order Wiki, uh, Murderpedia had a lot of really good information on it. Um, I watched a Hulu documentary called Truth and Lies, the Menendez brothers, American Sons, American Murderers. Longest title ever. (laughs) Um, that's from 2017. There was an ABC news report from 2018 on Good Morning America that I watched. I won't say what it's called because it's a spoiler. And I read a couple of articles, one in the LA Times by Sam Enriquez and Ronald Sobel from 1989, and one on Biography.com from 2020 by Jordan Zacharin. Great. Okay, so here we go. The crime took place in Beverly Hills, but the family, I thought this was kind of an interesting tidbit, they were... Uh, from before that, from Hopewell Township in New Jersey, which was just 90 minutes away from where I lived. Oh, wow. Okay. Right? And then they end up moving here to Beverly Hills or Calabasas. And that's... I was going to say, I thought it was Calabasas. Yeah. Yeah. And that's not far from where you grew up. Calabasas? Well, I mean, in comparison, they moved from New Jersey to (laughs) to Southern California. I was like, did you forget what city I was born in? (laughs) I mean, it's only a few hours away. It's true. It's true. Yeah. It's closer than New Jersey. Right. So it was night. They were living 90 minutes away from me. And then they moved to what? Two and a half hours away from you. Yes, that's probably. Yeah. Two and a half. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. All right. I'll give I'll give it to you. I thought that I was, was just, like a f- for a minute. I was just like, <laughs> did you think I was born in Calabasas? <laughs> I just thought it was a fun little uh, connection. <laughs> I love it. Thank you. Um, and again, this, I was five when this all happened. But as we said, we both remember it playing out. In terms of the episode, um, the episode actually came out before the trial, which is interesting to note, I think. Oh, like the they they wrote and produced and and released the episode while it was not decided yet? Yes, because the oh. the crime was in August of nineteen eighty nine. The trial ended up being delayed until nineteen ninety two. So okay. a lot of what happens in the trial was completely unknown when this case came when this episode came out because both Uh the prosecution and the defense very very strongly held to their chest like what they were going to do in trial okay and one of the reasons it got delayed so long was because of um, evidence being debated whether it could be admissible so we'll, we'll get to that so it's very important to know that while the episode differs a lot it it has to because a lot of the what was known was not put out there 
Okay. So let's go back to the beginning. Back to when the earth, the sun, the stars all aligned. <laughs> all right. Hillary Hillary Duff. <laughs> back to the beginning. <laughs> she knew it. She it's deep. <laughs> I love that song and it and she cannot sing. Oh, not at all, but I love every everything about her. So at the beginning, Jose Menendez was born. <laughs> That's the beginning that of the, the beginning of time. <laughs> uh, Jose was born in Havana, Cuba in 1944, and he immigrated to the USA when he was 16 years old after Fidel Castro came into power. Um, and it's here that he attended South or Southern Illinois University. That's where he ends up meeting his to-be wife, Mary Louise Anderson, who goes by Kitty. The thing that's frustrating to me about- How is Kitty a nickname for Mary Louise? I have no idea. And that I would know if anyone talked more about her in any of the articles, but she is- Oh, is she just kind of glossed over? She's completely, I think she's used more in this case as a piece of evidence than a human being. And it's very upsetting to me, but I was able to find like every article that mentions her only starts her life when she meets her husband. Like they talk all about Jose- and how he grew up and da 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 and then he meets his wife and then that's the only time she's mentioned that's where she she begins when she becomes a wife and a mother so it's kind of frustrating yeah that's not great yeah but i was able to find two articles or two sort of like biographies of her online mm-hmm. one was from imdb and it was submitted by anonymous and it was scathing so i won't even mention it um the other one was from murderpedia and at least it was more thought out so um that's anything i'm getting from her previous life before jose is from murderpedia so she was born in 1941 in oaklawn chicago where her home life was pretty tumultuous uh, by all accounts of her family members she was a middle child and her father was very abusive to their mother in front of them and eventually he leaves the family for another woman. This event reportedly had like a huge impact on the whole family's lives. Um, Kitty's mother after this became very withdrawn and bitter, and this caused a huge rift between Kitty and her father. They uh, uh, apparently never speak again. So mm-hmm. she eventually goes to, as we said, Southern Illinois University, where she meets um, Jose eventually. While she's here, she's studying broadcasting, and she had big dreams of going into the field afterwards. And she eventually competes and wins Miss Oaklong Beauty Pageant. So congrats. Good for her. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, she and Jose fall madly in love in college and they share big dreams of their future together. And they both have tumultuous pasts in different ways, mm-hmm. but they, they dream of raising a family of their own someday. And family was a huge point of contention in their relationship just from the jump because Jose's parents thought Kitty's family was too low class because they were very firmly middle class. And um, I think her dad owned like a air conditioning supply place. And the mom, I think, was unemployed. I don't even know how they made ends meet eventually. So they didn't like her family and they thought they were too young to even be getting married. Okay. Kitty's family also didn't like the idea of them getting married for racist reasons. They didn't like her marrying (laughs) someone that wasn't white. Okay. But they decide to elope in 1963, and then they move to New York, and in 1968 they have their first son, and they name him Joseph Lyle, who would eventually go by Lyle. And then in 1971 they have Eric, and they move to New Jersey, where Kitty permanently gave up her dreams of making it in front of the camera, and she decided to be a full-time wife 
and full-time mom and support Jose's many, 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 many business ventures. So at this point, her life becomes very dictated by Jose by all accounts. And he, he carries on according to um, his, his family and some of her family, he carries on extramarital affairs. Um, he's constantly uprooting their life in one way or another, whether it's investing in a new business that fails or he reinvents his career a few times. He tries a lot of different things to make money. He's very obsessed with the American dream and making money and achieving wealth and being looked at as acceptable in white America. That's very important to him. Yeah. So he, he eventually uproots them for a really big time. He moves them across the country from, like I said, from New Jersey to Calabasas and um, Lyle stays behind because he's attending, he's attending Princeton and that's mm. right where they were living. So he remains behind to attend school, but the other three Menendez um, moved to Calabasas in 1985. So as children, um, the boys were described as having an immense amount of pressure and structure put upon them by their father, Jose. And as I said, he had this very big obsession with the American dream. He wanted them to appear a certain way. He wanted his family to look a certain way. He wanted his kids to grow up a certain way. He had a whole trajectory planned out for each of them. Um, he even had picked, uh, he wanted them to play separate sports. He had let them pick it, but he was like very firm on making sure that they did whatever he wanted to do. Um, <clears throat> so the, the idea of failure is something they talk about a lot. The pressure of failure for the, the boys to not, it wasn't an option to be bad at anything, but right. the boys constantly were in at least their father's eyes and maybe society's eyes to a certain extent. They kept failing at things. So it was frustrating for their father, which in turn made home life harder. And, you know, you get the you get the cycle. <clears throat> how did how are one of them was at Princeton? He couldn't have been failing that badly. Well, you know, more on that in a moment. OK, so. <laughs> Um, as they grew up, the boys developed a strong bond. They both had similar feelings about their upbringing, so that bonds them together. And Eric always idolized his older brother, Lyle. Um, and you could see that even even later on down the line. During okay. uh, grade school, they were placed in a private school where their grades struggled the entire time. And it's it's written in many of the things I've read and watched that the only reason their grades even remained afloat at all was because their parents started doing their homework for them. Uh, <laughs> and I'm okay. like, I wish mine would have. <laughs> Actually, yeah. maybe not. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so the parents were doing homework for them. So they would get good grades for that. They would do fairly well in tests, but they wouldn't mm. complete assignments. They had a bad attitude in school and they were not, they were looked at as very cocky and arrogant and like a lot of machismo. Okay. In uh, 1982, their cousin, Diane van der she reports that Lyle, who was then 14, and Eric, who was then 12, had been wrestling around with her on, on this one occasion. And without warning, they ripped her clothes off together <gasps> and only ran away after she was screaming and almost heard. Oh, my God. Yeah. This was their their aunt? Their cousin. Their cousin. Okay. Yeah. I mean, whatever, but wow. Yeah. And then later in the same time span, she also said she was attacked by Lyle again in a similar fashion. And he like pinned her down and ripped her shirt off and fondled her, her breasts. Ugh. Um, and it was just something that no one talked about. Yeah. 
Okay, so Lyle eventually goes to Princeton, as you mentioned, and even though he had been um, in Princeton, his first initial attempt to go there had been rejected, but his father was intent... In his, what was the word I'm looking for? His father really wanted him to go to an Ivy League school. Based upon his father's influence, his finances, and the boys' athletics, he was let in on a second try the next year. Okay. Um, but his grades weren't great. His test scores weren't great. And while he was there, his grades suffered. And he mm-hmm. was suspended for plagiarism shortly in his first semester. Okay. This was a huge disgrace for the family that he was suspended for a, for a whole term. And his father was like totally, totally at his wits end with him. He lets him come home, but he has to start working with his father, who at the time was working for um, like a... He was trying to run a media type of thing called Vice The dad media. was or the brother was? The dad. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Something like that. I think it was called Vice, but it wasn't successful. Can I just say it's so funny? Like when I, I started researching this crime for the original vision we had for this podcast. And so as you're saying things, I'm like, oh, yeah, Princeton. <laughs> like, oh, right. He failed out of Princeton. Like, <laughs> it's just like little pieces are coming back to me. I love it. It makes me feel like I'm, I'm hitting all the notes. <laughs> totally. Yeah. <laughs> So uh, his father lets him work with him, but it, it doesn't go well. It doesn't last very long. He He's hated by everyone on the team. He hates his job. He doesn't want to do it. And eventually his father has to fire him because the rest of the staff is telling him, you, you're, you hired your son. He's doing a terrible job. He has a bad attitude and it's not fair. So he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah you're right. So he fires him. So that's kind of where Lyle is at in life. Um, Eric his younger brother, he grows up in his brother's shadow, which (laughs) haven't we all? (laughs) He was very insecure. Um, He's very reserved of the two of them. And his parents were worried about him very early on, especially his mother, about the possibility of him being gay. Um, This is is the older or younger? The younger brother. Okay. The younger brother. And it's used, like, they use it to put pressure on him to find a girlfriend. Mm. Um, and he struggles to do so. And at one point his mother, like, and father give him six months to get a girlfriend. Like it's a task. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Can you imagine? Like. What, what was the threat? Like at the end of those six months, what were they going to do? I have no idea. It was just like, a, they were goal setting people. So who knows, but. <laughs> you have a six month deadline. Find a woman. Yeah. So he, he has on, his older brother has a lot more luck with women in his time in high school and stuff. He does not have the same success. And during high school, he becomes close friends with a gentleman named Craig Signorelli. He was um, on the tennis team with him, and tennis was like one of his passions. So during their friendship in high school, (laughs) this is crazy. I wonder if you read this. They had together written a screenplay. um, Okay. Just as like a project they were passionate about. And it was called Friends. Um, it's about New York 20-somethings, and they're figuring it out, sipping coffee. <laughs> no. Oh, my God. Okay, okay. I was like, what? <laughs> no, it is called Friends, but it's a different plot. Um, it's about a boy from a wealthy family who murders his parents to inherit millions. What? Mm-hmm. I thought it was going to be about them being in love with each other or something. Oh, no, no. It's about huh. a, a song called Smelly Cat. No. <laughs> <laughs> So clearly the Menendez brothers were both motivated by money as well, because during out during their youth and after high school, they 
both engaged in a lot of theft together of all their friends' parents' homes. Could you imagine you're bringing your friends over and they're just stealing from your parents? I mean, no, but also I feel like that is not surprising given some of the behavior you've talked mm, about that they've true. displayed already. True, true. So th- they do a series of burglaries. Like, l- listen, here's one of the things. When you are pushing the elements of a, you can, like the the bootstrap culture of America of like, if you just work hard enough, you can get ahead. Like, and if you're failing, it is a personal failure. There are no other explanations for that, which in this case, maybe they were like, it was individual. They just weren't trying hard enough or whatever it is. But part of the problem of that intense pressure of like, if you just work hard enough, you can get into Princeton, you can become a multimillionaire. And if those things don't start to happen, then people start to like seek other outlets to kind of like get their... Uh, you know, feeling of accomplishment or feeling of control or whatever it is. Like it's all, it's that sort of ideology is like really tied up in toxic masculinity. And this idea of if you're not succeeding, you're a failure as a man. And so I can see a lot of those sort of elements at play in this story. A hundred percent. And I'm glad you mentioned that because they, they do mention in a lot of the articles and mostly in the documentary, the idea of like this, traditional cultural machismo from their Uh culture and the man having a certain role and having to be a certain way and having to perform tasks and um, behave in the world in a certain fashion or they're, you know, he's not a man. They're a failure. Yeah. Yeah. And this is something that um, Jose was really big on and he pushed on his kids. And the, the idea you just brought up about when you are having a hard time achieving the things that you believe you should just achieve because you're trying and you just deserve to and that's it and you um resort to alternative methods that are you know maybe not as um ethical i guess yes um the father is jose is reported by many people as pushing that idea on them as well like if you can't get it one way then you gotta lie cheat and steal like which he yeah okay which he had done himself (laughs) Right. That's what I was going to say. You know, and, you know, by all admission, by all accounts, you know, business partners, yeah. family members, everyone. So, yeah, I, I, you could see where they would have thought, you know, this is what I could just do whatever I this want. This is what I should do. Yeah. And they reportedly walked around in life as very arrogant, nobody can touch me kind of people, particularly Lyle more than Eric. Which, by the way, is the least attractive personality quality. Disgusting. Like, uh, yeah the entitlement Nobody, like ugh. well and and i think ironically people think that makes you really attractive it actually just makes you disgusting repulsive <laughs> oh my god there's a there's a scene in the documentary we watched where um one of his friends say that lyle was the kind of guy that would like go into a store and when no one was like paying attention to him he would stand up on like a table and start throwing shoes and be like hey i'm looking for shoes is anyone gonna help me what the fuck and i was like disgusted with him <laughs> i worked in a shoe st- in a footwear department for many years and i've seen that kind of behavior from people to be honest that yeah triggering i was like oh i know <sighs> what kind of guy you are instantly uh, yeah that you know like i was 100 like, percent. yeah yeah so this is definitely like the kind of vibe people were getting from them even their friends their close friends so yeah, so they're pe- they're resorting to pe- not even petty theft. They're res- resorting to real actual burglary of their friends or acquaintances' families' homes. And yeah. in the the course of nineteen eight, the year of nineteen eighty eight, they 
I can't even, how do you even do this? The amount reportedly stolen from these houses was over a thousand, a hundred thousand dollars. I mean, maybe they were stealing like Rolexes and I shit. Mean, oh my gosh. So in a very short period of time, and they're convicted of these crimes as well, um, they end up accepting plea deals. Uh, they're ordered to return all of the stolen property that they have left, and anything that was not left over was monetized in the amount of $11,000, and Jose was ordered to pay that remainder for his children. Ooh, I bet that didn't go over well. Yeah, but he loved that. He he didn't like the suspension. Imagine um, this. So yeah, <laughs> even though he contributed to that whole perspective mind- of yeah, theirs, exactly. Yeah. Um, Lyle ends up later on being tied to other burglaries of like actual businesses, but by the time the evidence for those exist and arise, um, he had bigger fish to fry. So no convictions. Mm-hmm. Okay. Kitty, um, their mother, by the summer of 1989, had become very frightened of her kids, and she began keeping two 22 rifles in the closet. Jesus. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that's fright. I feel like if you're sca- that scared of somebody, like, if I were scared enough to keep a rifle, like, under my pillow, <laughs> I would have a restraining order against that person. Hello? I mean, that and is I not know- going to protect you. And I know that the restraining orders don't always solve everything, but... If you're that scared, do all of the things you can to prevent that from hap- from something bad happening. Right. And do you, know? you live with these people. Well, also I mean, that. Kids. True. <laughs> you, yeah. You live with these, cho- these ch- kids of yours, you know, and they're adult children by this point, you know, so they're not, they're their children, but they're not children. Right. Um, so she's, she's frightened. And on July 19th, 1989, she sees her therapist and he made notes of the session that indicated that Carrie, Carrie, that Kitty was concerned that her sons were quote narcissistic, lacked con- lacked consciences, and exhibited signs that they may be sociopaths. That's yep, yep. yeah. I mean, I think we've seen a lot, some examples of that so far already. <laughs> right. So this is um, where her mind is at at this time. And the night before the crime, the family was all returning home from a reportedly cold and really awkward boat trip. On eleven on August twentieth, nineteen eighty nine, at eleven forty seven p.m., Lyle places a frantic nine one one call saying they shot and killed my parents. It's a lot of emotional crying. Uh, both the brothers are heard screaming over one another in in the frantic call, and the dispatcher sends help. And the police who reported who who showed up, um, they report that the boys were very distressed. Um, they were comforting each other, screaming, oh my God, I can't believe it, over and over again. Now, what are your thoughts on 911 calls and the, and like particularly fake 911 calls? Because I always wonder, like, one time I set my kitchen on fire by mistake. <laughs> and I, in, in that moment of panic, I, I had to either call 911 or grab my fire extinguisher or get out of my house. And what I did in that moment was, really quickly alternate between all three of those and do nothing. And so I always wonder, you know, if I had to make a 911 call like that, would I be like, you know, cause they always talk about fake 911 calls. They're like, Oh my God, there's so much blood. What, what do you mean? What are you talking? I can't hear you. I can't understand you. She's bleeding. You know, like they're doing things to like delay people coming for help. They're acting mm-hmm. really w- dramatic, whatever. But I always wonder if I were in that situation, would I be like, send an ambulance to insert my address? Somebody's been shot. Or would I be like, Oh my God. Oh my God. Oh my God. I know. You I know what I mean. I, I, don't I know. completely agree. I, cause you know, a lot of true crime things we'll talk about, 
um, the validity of 911 recordings and, you know, how does one react in the, you know, right. and how do you gauge that? But like when there's a fake 911 call, it's so obvious. I know they talk about it on my favorite murder. Like, I don't know which, I think it's Karen cannot handle them. <laughs> no, she hates them. I love 911 call recordings um, because I think it's like either it's, complete evidence of like how this person's state of mind was and it's very like it just places you right back in that moment or uh-huh. it's like complete evidence to show that this person planned this call yes and i think if i were in a situation like in a i would imagine if i was in a situation like that my 911 call would be very informational like this is what happened. This is send what, an know, ambulance. Send an ambulance. Yeah. But I think I would be. I would sound emotional, of course. But I think I would sound right. more like I'm trying to catch my breath. I'm trying to keep it together, rather than right. like the panicked, like "Oh my god, I can't believe this." Because at the time, right. someone's making a nine one one call, especially if they're not alone. The person who makes the call is the the one who's most clear headed in the room. Obviously. Yeah, true. Otherwise, right. you know, who's no one makes the call, and the yeah. person who's doing it, who's making that call has a a goal when they're making that call and the goal is of getting help getting exactly so i would imagine you know you hear that emotion but even in this 911 call they played it on um the document have you heard it no i haven't it's do you think we can insert it here we have to look up the legalities of it but i would love to if we can okay here yeah if we can record if we can put it in here it is so if trigger warning trigger alert if anyone out there doesn't like to hear 911 calls if you're like Karen. <laughs> um, but yeah, if you don't like that, then fast forward ahead um, and then we can add in however long, I guess. <laughs> or just fast okay, forward perfect. ahead until you hear us talking again, basically. Beverly Hills emergency. Yes, please. Uh... What's the problem? Sounds, uh... What's the problem? What's the problem? I'm sorry to kill my parents. What? Who? Yeah, so judge for yourself what you think. I think personally, I have opinions on it, which you know you'll will become clear by the end of the case. So, but I think I would I would be informational in a nine one one call. I don't think this would be how I would have been. Okay. So Detective Les Zoller, he investigates and notices that at the scene of the crime, there's no sign of forced entry. There's no sign of burglary. 
Um, but the boys were not really initially suspects because, you know, of the whole circumstance of the situation. There was no evidence to su- to suggest they were suspects. Right. Um, because of this, a lot of evidence, potential evidence was lost. For instance, they were not able to do a gunshot residue test on either of the boys. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. So it's funny they mentioned that in the show because that's specifically something that they wished they could have done. To. Exactly. Yeah. During questioning... They, so they bring the boys in for questioning just because, you know, they found the bodies and they're hoping they can give them more information about their parents' lives to explain who might be, you know, responsible. Suspect, yeah. yeah. So during questioning, Lyle keeps us cool, but about 20 minutes in, Eric breaks down and, um, you know, tells them the story of what happened. And they say that they were at the movies seeing Batman and they had made plans for getting dinner afterwards at the Cheesecake Factory... <laughs> oh, dream. 45-page menu. Yes. Which Batman? The first one, right? I believe it just said Batman, so it had to be the first. It's it was 1990, yeah. so... Um, yeah. 89, yeah, yeyeah, yeah. So the first Batman is so good. You know what's funny? I don't know that I've ever seen the first Batman. I think the first Batman I saw was the one with Catwoman. Wow. Oh, okay, wait. Isn't the first one... Oh, is that the first one? Yeah. No. Michelle Pfeiffer, Catwoman? Isn't that Batman Returns? Oh, you're right. Yes. Ca- okay. Bat- yeah, you're right. That's and a it's good got, one too. Uh, Danny DeVito as the penguin. Yeah, that one was pretty good. Oh my god, what do you mean pretty good? It was incredible. Yeah, that one, I remember liking that one. I think it really falls apart when you get to you know Batman and Robin. But oh boy, so, they have so much. They about have that. nipples. They have nipples. They have a lot. <laughs> they have body shaming. They have nipples. They have over the top colors. They have a lot oh, of things. Boy, <laughs> yeah. Anyway, anyhow, but um. Yeah, so he he breaks down. He tells them that they had gotten seen Batman. They went to go to the Cheesecake Factory, but they were intending on getting drinks. And so neither of them were of age. So they had to stop home to get their fake ID. And this is this detail is noted a lot in a lot of the articles, but I can never find what the relevance of it is. But when uh-huh. they get home, they notice smoke in the house. Um, huh. There's no fire. I don't. I really don't know. <laughs> but it's alarming to them that there's smoke in the house. I think it's supposed to indicate that Maybe they were like, in. maybe, I guess so. I really don't know. Or maybe they were in the middle of something like, and then got interrupted and something was burning. The macaroni is burning on the stove, basically. But I don't know. Interesting. So they come inside of the house because of the smoke is alarming them. And they come upon their parents who have been killed. And their best guess as to what happened was, quote, maybe the mob, end quote. Okay. Which is, I think, where a lot of what we see in the episode comes from. Okay. That makes sense. Mm Mm-hmm. So this theory is investigated, but quickly thrown out (laughs) (laughs) because there's no indication that this was a mob experience. (laughs) Mob experience. (laughs) Come down. (laughs) To get the full mob experience. experience. (laughs) (laughs) Come on, mob experience. (laughs) Uh, It doesn't, it doesn't resemble a typical mob crime. A lot of times the, the female counterpart of the of the um the target is not usually killed, especially in this oh, manner. Yeah. Um, there's no force entry or anything like that. Like we said earlier, there's nothing taken. There's no like sort of trophy taken because of the crime. There's no like marker left behind. There's no anything. Right. And the thing that they find that sounds mobby at all, mobby, is <laughs> both of the um victims of the crime. So. You know, as the boy said in the in the call, both Jose and Kitty have been slain in, in their own home. Um, they've mm-hmm. both been shot multiple times each. And 
Among the gunshot wounds are wounds to their kneecaps. Okay. Which is, you know, maybe a sign of a mob experience. Yeah. <laughs> a sign of a mob experience. <laughs> I mean, if you're going to shoot somebody in the kneecaps, doesn't that imply, I don't want you to run, right. but I want to be able to either torture you or question you until I kill you. Correct. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And this is... You know, so they they consider like, okay, that's weird detail. But when they look into it, um, the both both bodies, both victims, the final shots were the kneecaps. So it appears oh. as though it was done intentionally to make it look like a mob. Oh, I see. Okay, yeah. they were like, whoever did it. I mean, let's it was just drop all pretense. It was the sons. Uh, <laughs> I, I, what? <laughs> and. Like, I, I see. That. So the purpose of that is, like, let's give some confusing evidence that will misdirect the police, basically. Right. And when okay. they're asked, who do you think did it? They said, maybe the mob. <laughs> so. I don't know. Maybe maybe it was a raccoon with a bazooka. <laughs> Guardians of the Galaxy spinoff. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so. It was a talking um, tree. <laughs> oh, imagine. I am crew. So. <laughs> A sharp left turn out of Happyville. Um, <laughs> Jose, the father, had been shot in the back of the head. That was, I think, the, the killing shot and the first shot. They were found in the study, I guess you would call it, like a main room when you first walk in to the left of this you grand know... staircase. Kind of like the show. The, the house kind of looked like the show. Okay. Yeah, it, it's very, very, very grand and op like. Like a real housewife. Opalette. <laughs> <laughs> they own everything. <laughs> It's like um like very early Housewives of New Jersey home. Mm, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they're found in the study, and the fatal shot to Jose was the gunshot wound to the head. Kitty had even more gunshots to her, her body, including three Ugh. to her face that left her completely unrecognizable. <gasps> oh, God. That I really speaks a lot to, like, hate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you she... You know, like, that's... Yeah. That's intense. Yeah, and she's shot way more times, and it's clear she was trying to escape um, from the positioning of her body. Uh, Jose appears to be a, have been sort of caught off guard. Well, yeah, if he's shot in the back of the head. Yeah, he has other gunshot wounds all over his body. Some of them were, I think, post-mortem. Um, I think some of them were while he was struggling to survive from the initial shot, it seems like. It's a wow. lot. Arms, legs, it's, it's, it's really bad. It's a lot of anger. Yeah, a lot of anger, a lot of blood. Um, it's a terrible scene for anyone to witness, but something definitely begins to now change the way Lyle and Eric are being looked at because not only do they not have an explanation for the crime scene, extremely quickly afterwards, within 24 hours, um, they're looking to see how they can cash in. <laughs> e- okay. So not even like, mm-mm. We need to move and be away. Like, nope, I guess, they, you know, I, you might not sell the house right away, but you might go, like, stay with relatives or stay with friends or something so you don't have to be in that space. Yeah. I mean, their relatives were standing behind them. Um, they they were like, oh, this was a horrible thing that happened to you boys on both both families' sides. Um, but they, and they, so they did stage a m- memorial with the Directors Guild of America because his father had connections with the media world because of his job. Uh-huh. And so they staged this memorial that's televised. It has a big outpouring of people. Um, there's a huge church service as well that has a lot of people come to it. And it's publicly on, t- you know, it's on TV. There's crying from the boys and they're doing all the things. But <laughs> um, yeah, at the same time as these things are happening, they're still pocketing money and, and they go on a 
well, anyway. So yeah, so there is a show of of mourning for the people, mm-hmm. but at the same time, mm-hmm. simultaneously, they're spending a bunch of money and trying to see how they can get money, which leads some of the family members to be suspicious. Yeah. Um, you know what's really interesting? There's an episode of Criminal where she interviews, I forget what the person's specialty was, but they were somebody who's kind of an expert on like insurance fraud. Mm-hmm. And he was basically like, listen, here's the thing with insurance fraud. Like if you commit this crime to collect on insurance, insurance companies will like document you forever to prove like if the claim is big enough, they will like follow you and hound you to catch you on a misstep to prove that you're not actually like truthfully innocent and just collecting the claim. Like they will hound you until they prove that you are guilty of having uh like premeditated this or whatever that's really good to know because i always wonder if like <laughs> you're like Ooh, i guess i'm gonna change my plans for friday <laughs> davy cancel that life insurance plan <laughs> oh please like either of us would be able to stand to collect more than a hundred bucks <laughs> tax down to three dollars <sighs> yeah um no but i think that's it i think that's good to know because i I fully expected insurance companies, um, like life insurance policies, to have agents that, of course, follow leads and want to know leading up to the death of somebody Mm -hmm. to make sure Mm -hmm. that it's all legit. And I would imagine they stay around a little while, but I didn't expect them to be that tenacious. So that's good to know. If I can find, remember which episode of Criminal that was, I'll try to put it in the show notes. Okay, perfect. Within four days of the crime, the boys had spent more than $15,000 on things like money clips, Rolexes, the life insurance, in addition to the um, $650,000 life insurance policy that they're able to collect on, they also collect $2 million from their parents' estate, which they were very Mm. disappointed by because the value of their parents' entire estate was $14 million. But after hmm. fees mm-hmm. and everything, they only collect two million. Bummeroni. Okay. Um, I what a honestly, somebody handing you a check for any million would be incredible. Exactly, and it's it's reported on a few articles that they believed that their father had money in a Swiss bank account that they could find, but that's never been substantiated by anything. Okay. In their spending spree, they rent apartments each individually that are over two thousand dollars in rent a month. Each of them. Um, Lyle buys a $64,000 Porsche. Um, let's see. He's, he's in trying to build a business called Menendez Investment Enterprises that he fully staffs with friends of his who are completely inexperienced. Mm. Yeah, that's always the right choice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he buys luxury furniture for the office of this and for their homes. They buy, oh, he invests in a restaurant that he eventually buys, and then he wants to open Cheesecake up Cheesecake Factory. <laughs> Cheesecake Factory Part 2. It's like a buffalo wing uh, chain of some port, some site. Okay. And then Eric is also spending a lot of money with this. He's buying fancy clothes. He hires a private tennis coach, and they're both taking like these lavish trips. And this is like within the couple weeks wow. after their, their parents are dead. All of this. Wow. All of this. So yeah. it's it's highly publicized and detective zoller and detective tim lineman now is is on the case and they're trying to find links from the boys because it's it's so suspicious family and neighbors are starting to call in like this is not right we 
we uh-huh. hate to believe this about them, but this is not okay. And um <laughs> Key Whitney Houston. It's not, it's not right. right. And it's also not okay. God, I love that song. So good. The dance remix is better. Oh, of course. Yeah. That epic moment when you're waiting yeah. for that. I'm not bum, gonna bum, do it. I'm editing that out, but for everybody else, I just tried to hit the high note in Whitney Houston's, um, oh my God, the song, I just felt out of my head. It's all right, but it's okay. Thank you. I just tried to hit the high note. I failed miserably. (laughs) It was great. It is not going to be a part of this episode. The audio is like off for the rest of the episode now. There's like a ringing. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, anyhow, they, they're very suspicious and okay. So like I said, the neighbors are all contacting, um, police and digging deeper, trying to find more information they question the psychotherapist for the boys, whose name is Jerome Oziel. So he tells them that on October 31st, he'd been holding this information because he was afraid. But on October 31st, Eric, in a session, had broken down and said, we did it. We killed our parents. I thought that would be like covered under patient confidentiality type thing. Well, that that comes into play. So okay. the big reason this whole case was delayed was because of that exact reason oh was fighting over whether that would be admissible more on that so he goes on to tell authorities that he confessed that uh that eric had confessed to him that they got the idea from coverage of the billionaire boys club crimes and i don't really know much about them i've never heard of that yeah yeah i was too engrossed in this to look into it but you know if you know anything out there about the billionaire boys club crimes and uh you want to send us some articles or something, feel free. Yeah. Um, I am curious. I've heard of Billionaire Boys Club, but I think it became like a clothing line at some point. Mm. Like just named after whatever. Okay. So they had been watching some kind of coverage of this on TV and they got the idea that their dad was going to disinherit them from the, mm. from the will. Mm. And mm-hmm. so they hashed this plan to go buy shotguns. They picked a place in San Diego because it was far enough away. And they thought it would be, quote, the perfect crime. It's um, not. There, mm. I, there's no such thing. That's the thing. Hello. So Lyle, um, he says that Lyle and he had killed their parents and that they disposed of their clothes in a, like, ravine. They took, like, a long scenic drive. <laughs> and they got rid of the bloody clothes and the shotguns they threw. Or no, they throw the shotguns in a ravine. They throw the bloody clothes in the dumpster. Okay. And the the whole, like plan ends with them coming back home and calling 911. The mm-hmm. the plan was originally going to be they they did the crime, they leave and they go to this like uh, I don't know what you would call it, like a ashram festival. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, an ashram. They um, went to Coachella. <laughs> exactly. No, not that kind of festival, like a like an arts festival. Okay. Like okay, a local okay. arts festival type thing. Um, but the timing wasn't right, and that's when they decided to go to Cheesecake Factory instead. So they needed to, <laughs> you know, um, head back home right away and call nine one one because their their whole plan was sort of like not working out. And then Eric got nervous about it, and they're like, "Okay, forget it. We're just going to go home and call nine one one." Can we talk about like the the mental space of somebody to be able to kill your parents and then go have dinner at the Cheesecake Factory? is like stomach churning like the the ability to like fake that and talk to a waiter and order your 85,000 calorie macaroni and cheese it's mm. really terrifying to me that some that people can do that and and you just not only did you just kill your parents 
you did it in a very like violent, bloody, extremely way. violent. Like, yeah. Even if you were planning on doing it, if this is your your first kill, so we are saying that. But if this is like your first experience with this, that has to be that has to be traumatic. It has to be right. Like even if you've thought about it and planned it out, it has to be awful to to execute. And you just ditched your bloody clothes. I mean, a hundred percent with you. I don't understand the mindset, and I think that's the whole point of this whole. Th- anyway, yes, exactly. <laughs> All this, this is to say, yes, <laughs> I agree. <laughs> um, yeah. And so he admits to all of this and he says that this is still the psychologist, right? Yes. This is okay. the psychotherapist's um, uh, account of what happened in this session. He also says that during the session, Lyle arrives because he was on the way. They got um, sessions together, I guess. And Lyle was pissed, pissed, pissed that um, Eric had just confessed and he reportedly said that he thought their dad would have been... He admits to it, though, as well. Mm. Um, he's just mad that he confessed. And he admit, he says that he thinks their dad would have been proud of their effectiveness in the murder. Ugh. Um, he also reportedly referred to them, both of them as sociopaths in like a casual way. And he threatens the doctor saying that they would kill him if he said anything. Well, okay. Oh, so maybe that's how it becomes admissible. Because once... Like, I think therapists are allowed to release that information if you are a risk to yourself or others for for additional violence. And that is what the defense, are, that is what the prosecution argues. Okay. That yeah. exact thing. Oh, you're so smart. <laughs> so um, on November 2nd, they actually go back again to the psychotherapist's office and they threaten him again. But what they didn't know, as you just said, is that this ends up breaking their patient client privilege and yeah. instead of turning him into instead of turning the boys in at this point he just starts taping all of the sessions and taking really really detailed notes of everything wow so yeah. he like wow so was this like an intentional i'm going to help prove this case because these people are monsters kind of decision it seems to be like i'm going to protect myself because if i end up actually getting killed i want this on record so that they know what happened yeah, I mean, wouldn't you, I mean, there are so many different decisions, but I, I feel like if I were concerned that these people were going to kill me, I'd be like, FYI, my notes are like uploaded to the cloud. And if you, if I suddenly vanish, it's going to be evident who did this. Exactly. Except for there's no cloud back then. So if he actually <laughs> uploaded it to the cloud, it would just, uh, you know, get soaked in vapor. <laughs> Listen, he, he tied it to a helium balloon and sent it up to the cloud. Catch a falling star and put it... <laughs> It's like the new, uh, it's what inspired Up. Yes. Yes. (laughs) They originally tried to get rid of the whole house with the parents, like, slain inside by a bunch of balloons, but it just (laughs) never lifted off the ground because they were not using the correct type of helium. So embarrassing. The correct type of helium? Yeah, like a high grade. They were getting, like, cheap helium off the streets. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. The kind you just used to get a high voice. It's watered down helium. (laughs) So... Okay, so this, like like we said, it breaks um, confidentiality, but it, again, it's much debated later on. So detectives also, during their investigation now, now that they have this, they're like, okay, we need to question more people and find more information so we can have a case, just in case this isn't admissible. <laughs> we need to actually do detective yeah. <laughs> work. <laughs> I will say that the detective work seems pretty good here. Okay. It just seems as though a lot of circumstances prevented them, but I think that's probably debated as well. Yeah. Um, detectives also end up questioning Eric's best friend, Craig, who had played tennis with him, who we heard about earlier. Uh-huh. He's the one who tells them about that screenplay they had written when they were in high school. <laughs> um, I forgot about that. Yeah. He also says that 
Eric had volunteered the entire story of the killing to him. Wow. Um, I think he actually comes forward. I think that they question him because he comes forward. Good. Um, but he I says mean, that, yeah, he says that the plan that he was told by Eric was that Lyle was supposed to shoot Jose and Eric was supposed to shoot Kitty. But that <sighs> when they got there, Eric was unable to do it. He, he was unable to, to shoot his mother. And uh-huh. so she, that's why she was trying to escape. And I so see. Lyle ends up shooting her to Ugh. to stop her because it's too late. It's supposed that she has the wounds on her face because they think she was trying to cover her face. Oh God. Um, and the sad thing, the sad detail is that they're on her, they're not on her palm. They're on like the back of her hand. And the explanation they thought was that she was so shocked by who she saw doing the murder that she was covering her face. Well, yeah. Or because like, they weren't yeah. like defensive. They weren't like where oh, she was they holding weren't... her hand out. Oh, I see. Like it wasn't, because typically defensive would be like On the palm out. side. Yeah. Oh. So that's Ooh, like a God. detail they can't explain. And it's never like explained in court. But like the only supposition is that she was covering her face. So Eric says to his friend Craig that this all happens. He also says that he shoots his mother several times after she was down just to make sure she was dead. And the cops ask him if he's willing to try to get this confession on tape to try to get him to repeat it, which he agrees to. But unfortunately, when he does this, Eric says he lied about the whole thing. Mm, that doesn't so it help. actually, no, it works yeah. against them, really. A break comes in the case, however, when on March 5th, 1990, uh, someone named Judalon Smith, Ms. Smith, was a girlfriend of Dr. Ozier, the psychotherapist. Okay. Um, at the time of this, one of his lovers they refer to her as. I hate that word. Oh, I love her. So Judalon Smith, the lover of mm. Dr. Ozier, she comes forward and she says to officers or detectives that she has tapes from the sessions um, that the Menendez boys had done with her ex-boyfriend. <laughs> I don't know why I'm laughing thinking of Kyle Richards. I've seen things online. <laughs> <laughs> but, that's all... my goddamn house. Um... but that's all I can think of in that moment is I've seen things online. She would be the one who would hold these for years. Oof. I would be too, though. I mean, if I had these sessions, I would release them immediately. But she, I think her job at the time was she copied tapes. Like she had a service oh, you know, back in the day when you went places to have things like that done. <laughs> P.S. I just want to say, I'm, I feel like I'm cracking a lot of jokes in this episode, or at least what my brain thinks are jokes. And it's only because I'm really uncomfortable with this story because it's of course, deeply yeah. disturbing. Same. I had to write in a few light moments because yeah. it's like, oof. So through, they they find this out from her. She says that the session, the information on the sessions is damning. Okay. And so three days later, they're able to obtain a warrant to obtain these tapes, and they obtain 17 audio tapes and seven pages of notes from these sessions. They are able to use this to arrest Lyle on March 8th, and Eric is unable to be arrested on that day because he's in Israel competing in a tennis tournament. Like you do. Yeah, when you're mourning the... It's the normal stage of mourning. I think it's like the bargaining stage. Yes, you know, anger, grief, denial, tennis. (laughs) (laughs) Rolex. That is going to be the title of the episode, Anger, Grief, Denial, Tennis. Oh my god. You have to watch the document. It's on Hulu, the documentary I watched um, about this case, but it's there's this part where they're questioning the Menendez boys in an interview. I think it's ABC, and... One of the, I think it's Barbara Walters, actually. It's a Barbara Walters interview Hmm. when they were up before the trial or waiting for sentencing, maybe. 
they ask, she says, like, you bought Rolexes and, like, <laughs> such a large amount of money so soon. Like, do you know how that looks? And Lyle's like, yeah, I know how it looks, but... My dad would have wanted that or whatever. <laughs> he says that, like, their uncles controlled all the money that they were getting at some point. And so everything that they bought, they had to clear through their uncles. So it shouldn't be, like, a big deal. However, um, it was the family members that were so disturbed by their spending. So obviously, okay. it was a big deal. Yeah. But um, he says, yeah, our uncles were controlling the money and we were buying... We had to buy these suits for the funeral and, you know, we had to look I had to drive there way. in my Porsche. Yeah. Right. Of course. He says they had to look like nice and stuff like that. And so she's like, so you just thought like a several hundred or multi-thousand dollar Rolex was the perfect um, solution to addition that. to your, your funeral suit. <sighs> yeah. And he's like tongue tied. Like it's very awkward. I think actually, actually, you know what? That actually happens in the courtroom on the stand. Which that he gets tongue tied? Yeah, that he, the I think the prosecutor asks oh, him that. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. There is a Barbara Walters interview where she drills them and nails them on that kind of stuff too. But I think it's actually in the courtroom when that happens and it was like a big moment yeah. because it's like he didn't know what to say and it sounded so bad. Yeah. Like his excuse ended up sounding so much worse. <laughs> Ugh, that's what happens when you're cocky and you're on the stand. Yeah. So that's fast forwarding a little bit, obviously, but Eric comes back from Israel and turns himself in a few days later on March 11th and the detectives eventually find the, the store where the actual guns were bought. They searched and searched and searched and they couldn't find it. They finally find the store where the guns were bought from, but the name signed was not either of the Menendez boys. It was Donovan J. Goodrow. Is that a suit? Is it a made up person? <laughs> no, uh, it's well, of course it's Lyle's former roommate. Oh, um, wait, the one with the script. No, no, no. That was just, that was Eric's oh. friend, Craig. Oh, okay, so this okay. was his roommate when he was in either college or when they were in that private school i don't think they boarded though okay but it's like someone who he he lived with i think it was at college before he got uh suspended okay and um despite okay so despite knowing that his alibi was um donovan the person whose name assigned mm-hmm. he was in new york at the time very firmly in new york not in san diego and his <laughs> uh-huh. alibi is like very substantial airtight yeah yeah okay. he was at work <laughs> punched in seen by his boss and he reported and even though that is evidence and even though he reportedly had not been able to find his id for a year for a long time and he had said it was lost since he was in college and even though the guns were purchased in san diego where eric had originally confessed to his friend craig where they were going to buy the guns from mm-hmm. or where they said they bought the guns from mm-hmm. and even though <laughs> that they've admitted to having fake ids that's the whole reason they were going back to the house right they were unable to prove the boys had bought the weapons. Okay. So in court, Eric refuses to provide a signature uh, sample to compare. Um, Can't you be like forcibly subpoenaed? Like, I think they ask him to, but he like does the fifth amendment type thing. Okay. (laughs) It's not clear, but it says that he refuses to provide a signature sample comparison and that um, Donovan had, and it's completely different. Okay. Um, and that it was, da- it ends up being damning to him. Okay. He w- would not, um, sure. or whatever, yeah. obviously. Cause if you're innocent, you'd be like, I guess, sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know. We see all the time where shit goes sideways to get a conviction. People will generate false confessions and stuff. But I feel like in this case, there's <laughs> a lot I... of other evidence besides signing something. And I think we see it happen a lot more in cases where the, um, suspects are not viewed as white yeah yeah yeah. 
And the Menendez brothers, despite being half Cuban, um, are largely viewed as like white America. Yeah. And their family is looked at as posh, rich, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. wealthy. This is important to cover and important to do um, delicately. Yeah. So that's kind of, you know, the way the media was putting it out there at the time. And the media gets heavily involved right away. The criminal defense attorney assigned to the case for the boys, for each boy's separate trials, because they were each going to be represented by the same attorney, but separately. Um, Her name is Leslie Abramson. Mm -hmm. And she is, the first trial, Eric's trial, is televised. And um, she's the subject of, as a lot of, as were the Menendez brothers, um, of tons of media coverage, scrutiny, um, and she was often parodied due to her, like, very assertive manner of speaking, her, like, aggressive um, coverage of the case, the way she goes after people, and she's got, like, a curly hairdo that everyone is criticizing, <laughs> which is something we saw with the OJ trial. <laughs> I was you just going like, to say, was this, like, uh, Sarah Paulson? <laughs> exactly. It's, like, so ridiculous, but that's what they did. Like, yeah. even in the articles I was reading that covered it, they describe her as having, like, little orphan Annie blonde locks. <laughs> yeah. Like, that... This is what they do to female prosecutors. Yeah, but right. Not that she was, we'll get to her later, but. So she's cover, She's the one who's representing the boys. And Lyle's trial was not televised, partially due to the way the circus was in the first trial. Mm-hmm. So both trials, as I said, were delayed by years because the argument over whether the therapist tapes would be admissible. And so that wages on for, I think, two, two and a half years. And the prosecution ultimately wins for that exact reason. Once he was threatened, mm-hmm. they say that the subsequent sessions were done out of like pres- self-preservation rather oh. than actual therapy sessions. Okay. And so they shouldn't be considered the same way other therapy sessions were. Yeah. They were like him protecting himself and he had every reason to based on the threats. Mm-hmm. So it's a partial win though, because they're not able to admit one of the tapes, which is the December 11th tape where um, a lot of the murder's details are discussed. Okay. It was viewed as too prejudicial, um, huh. and they they wouldn't admit it. So they viewed that that one was protected under um, patient-client privilege, and the trial begins, and the defense... Or, so Eric's trial begins, and the defense lays out that the boys admit to the crime, and this was the surprise that was presented in, in trial that no one knew what the defense was going to be. Oh, whether so, they were going to plead guilty or innocent? Right, because up until this point, people were expecting them to say that they didn't do it or, you know, self-defense or something. But they say that they they confess and, you know, they did do it. But they're saying that it's actually the parents who are to blame because the boys had both endured years and years and years of secret sexual and physical abuse at the hands of their father. Okay. So the catalyst for the crime... In their, in their defense, is that Eric, the younger son, had confessed to his brother Lyle that his father, Jose, had been molesting him for the past 12 years. Yeah. So even in his, like, adult-ish kind of life. Oh, okay. So when he tells Lyle this, he is so enraged and upset by this because he hadn't told Eric this, but Jose had been molested by his father from the ages of six to eight years old. And okay. so he is so infuriated and upset that the same thing had happened to his brother. By the way, the the brothers, despite being at this time 22 and 24 years old, mm-hmm. throughout the entire trial, they're referred to as the boys. Yeah. The boys, the children, the boys. And I'm, 
even looking back at my own notes when I'm re- when I was writing that, I just searched to see how many times I had written the boys, yeah, knowing that this was a tactic and yeah. no, trying not to, and I'd done it eight times. I'm I'm sure I've said it a bunch of times. Yeah, yeah. But we know that when we see these other cases, when it's like, for instance, younger black boys, mm-hmm. they're turned into adults young men yeah yeah it's kind of like you were saying about the adultization (laughs) adultification um, yeah adultification thank you um it's it's exactly what happens reverse so the boys the boys the boys the children all the um newspapers all the media coverage the boys the children everywhere even the um prosecution in the interview in the documentary i watched admit that she was she was caught off guard and found herself calling the boys calling them the boys sometimes yeah so that's just an aside. So, because remind me how old they were at the time that they so allegedly at trial, killed trial they're twenty two and twenty four. So when they okay. allegedly killed their parents, he would have been twenty and I believe eighteen. Okay, eighteen and twenty. I think. Okay, so legal adults. Yeah, yeah. So when when Niall discovers this information out from from his brother, um, he confronts their dad and he threatens their dad and says, "Like this is, we're gonna, you know." press charges or whatever we're going to tell we're going to tell people yeah he threatens them and says like they're never going to tell anybody and so then they felt they were in danger they felt Mm -hmm. like he would now they had targets on their back now and that's when they hatched the plan and um like i said if we cover if we end up having the opportunity to cover this again i can give you more details about like what goes on in court yeah um they talk a lot about the sexual abuse in court and it's i don't want to be too gratuitous about it especially yeah. if we're not dedicating the time to it so i'm going to kind of outline what they say okay but um i was mentioning to n earlier for anyone out there listening there's a <laughs> spin-off of law and order <laughs> called i think law and order um the menendez brothers it's something like that and it's a they attempted to do like a uh sort of like american crime story like a mm-hmm. what do you call that the series has like a docu series kind of thing, like a docu series, but like every season would be a different story, possibly oh. with the same cast. Serial, like a serial. I guess so. I forget the name of it. There's a name for that kind of. There is a name for that, and I'm and somebody will email it to us or tweet it to us. I'm sure. <laughs> scream it at the top of their lungs. Yeah, right now. I'm sure you're screaming it right now. <laughs> but the first season was based on the Menendez brothers, and I think it's Edie Falco stars in it. A lot, a lot of big names. I love it, Edie Falco. Me too. Did you ever watch Nurse Jackie? No, because <gasps> you know why? Because it took over United States, United States of Terra, and I was so bitter that I didn't watch it. Because okay. that's the time slot it took over. <laughs> um, United States of Terra, I remember being incredible. I think I would love to rewatch it with a little bit of a an eye toward mm. like how like that's problematic true. is this? Oh um, my god, yeah, I, that's a good point. <laughs> but. I Nurse Jackie is truly a remarkably good show, and Edie Falco is phenomenal in it. I mean, I liked her in The Sopranos, so I I, I never I watched The Sopranos. I never finished it, but I watched it when it was on a little bit, um, just because they filmed it part of it in my in my hometown. Okay, so yeah, so they have this spinoff series, and it only lasted one season, but it's literally like eight, I think six to eight episodes, and it, I it's accessible. I can I can find it. I think it's pretty easy to find. So if we end up doing like a little side season, maybe we could do like a few episodes where we get more into the Menendez brothers. So yeah. do you think that's something you're interested in? Let Give us, us know. the green light. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So as I said, I don't want to be too gratuitous about it. So you know, forgive me for not focusing too much on this. I I really wanted to focus more on their parents' backstories a little bit because I try to usually look at the the main victims or survivors of the crimes. Mm-hmm. And in my mind, they are, you know, ultimately who lost their lives over this. 
Yeah. So they go into during both trials. Um, I've, I've seen the clips of the televised trial when they talk about this. And in my opinion, it is not acting. It's just very believable. Mm-hmm. And so they tell these stories about, especially Lyle. Lyle tells stories about what happened to him when he was between the ages of six and eight. And it's, it's very emotional. It's very heartbreaking. He actually on the stand in his trial, he, or in Eric's trial, he, he admits to, and it sounds like it's really not something Eric expected to come out in trial, but he admits that when he was young and he was being molested by his father, he would oftentimes go back and take his brother, Eric out into the woods and almost like mimic what his dad had done to him. Ooh. And and molest his brother with objects when oh. his brother was only five. God. And Honestly, when, when I every t- this is every time I think this story cannot get worse. I know. I know. When that happened, um, he the way he describes it, it just it it's too real to me to not be uh and the way Eric responds in the courtroom, they show his face, he just like breaks down into sobbing out from completely straight face. God. So the defense then, um, in addition to this testimony, which is huge for the defense, they, they point out they they're painting the mother, uh, Kitty as a deranged, damaged woman who had completely checked out of life and, um, let the abuse go on mm-hmm. and knew about it. So they're, they're saying she's complicit. There's some allegation of against her that is said in the documentary and stuff that I won't even repeat because I think it's completely unsubstantiated and disgusting mm-hmm. for, Eric's trial, they had 16 days of deliberation. For Lyle's trial, there were 24 days of deliberation, and they both ended in mistrial. Whoa. Yeah, both of them independently mistrial. And um, this shocked the nation. People were furious, furious, furious. And there was an insane amount of uproar at this point. The media went nuts, um, and most people were calling for the boys to be arrested, that this was unacceptable. The DA's office assured everyone they'd be retrying the case, and in 1995, they do just that. The boys are retried. This time, it's together. Uh, I should say the men. The men were retried, and this time, it was together, and much of the allegations of early sexual abuse and trauma were deemed too prejudicial, and they were Hmm. not admissible in court. It said that it may speak to things that have happened to them, but it's not relevant to the the reason the crime would have been committed in the way it did at that time. Because okay. what's ultimately is at stake is not whether they killed their parents, not whether they had motivations based on things that had happened to them in the past. It's in the in the moment when they p- killed their parents. Were they doing so because they were in imminent danger? Were right. they in fear in that moment of being in imminent danger? And they say they were, and that's what's at stake. So they deemed that all the... Early sexual abuse um, oh, was I see. not allowed because it did not have anything to do with that moment. However, many years later, okay, and this moment, gotcha. And so ultimately, they the trial concludes without that evidence being put in, and it takes four days this time for the men to be convicted of first degree murder and conspiracy to commit murder. Mm. And each boy's is uh, sentenced to two subsequent life sentences to be carried out in succession. And they are sentenced in different facilities. Mm. So in the documentaries I was watching, it was before sentencing. And the biggest fear they had was not being in the same facility. Yeah. Because they didn't think they'd be able to bear it. And that's yeah. ends up being what happens. So they're both still serving time. Um, they're both maintaining their stories 100% still to this day. In the 2017 documentary I watched, 
They're both still blaming their parents at some points. They're condemning the neighbors for not calling authorities sooner when the shots get heard in a weird moment. Hmm. Um, They seem unmoved by anything besides when they talk about the separate, the possibility of being separated. Yeah. Um, Later on, you know, they're both in their separate facilities and they both go on to marry one of them multiple times. Um, Okay. I guess Lyle is the one that talks more, but he regrets the severity of the crime. He wishes he hadn't killed his parents. He wishes they hadn't been violent. He wishes he had had the emotional intelligence or whatnot to not have done that at the time. That's about as far as they go as remorse. I don't... I don't buy any of that personally no, because I'm sorry. like I wish I had more emotional intelligence. You planned and and executed a very strategic murder. Mm-hmm. And you admit to that. That doesn't say I wish I had more emotional intelligence. Right. You know, like, like there's I don't know. There That's I, their whole that's the only shred of like regret you get from from them these days is you know, I wish I had known more at the time, basically. You know what I mean? The one, this is a piece of inter- information that was um, interesting. I'll quote it right from Murderpedia because they just say it the best. But so on April 4th, following the um, second week or during the second week of the penalty phase, an unexpected and stunning thing happened in court. Dr. Vickery, the psychiatrist who had treated Eric since 1990, not the psychotherapist, but a psychologist, a psychiatrist that was um, one of the defense witnesses. Mm-hmm. He admits that he doctored his notes at the direction of Leslie Abramson, their attorney. Huh. After under cross-examination, Vickery admitted that he omitted from his notes entire sections containing incriminating statements by Eric Menendez. Mm. This incident had major ramifications for the defense. On April 5th, Abramson invoked her Fifth Amendment privilege not to incriminate mm. herself when she refused to answer two questions about her possible misconduct regarding Vickery's notes. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and the most recent update I can find on them, I saw in this 2018 um, ABC report on mm-hmm. Good Morning America. Mm-hmm. They were reunited after 22 years apart. Uh, Lyle was quoted saying how overwhelmed and happy he was. Uh, the circumstances of their reunion is that through their programs that they were in on good behavior, one was able to get a transfer into the other facility. Mm-hmm. And so I think it was Lyle who ends up joining Eric and they will carry out the remainder of their sentence, it seems, in the same facility, in the same housing section, and they see each other every day. <sighs> and their few, their most recent prison shots show huge smiles. So, okay. you know, a lot to talk about there, a lot. Yeah. I wrapped up a lot of it um, in favor and talking more about, like I said, the deceased victims of the crime. And, you know, many would argue that Lyle and Eric are victims themselves. And I would agree. I would agree that they're survivors of sexual assault and horrific, horrific forms of manipulation and all of all of what comes in living in that kind of environment with those yeah. types of people. But I would personally disagree that this justified them killing their parents. And I would agree that they failed to prove that they were motivated by anything other than money in the moment. Right. And right. their feelings about their parents and like the trauma just like helped them like justify them doing it, you know? Right. Because the thing is, there are so many people who grow up in those kinds of environments who go on to kill absolutely nobody. Exactly. And it doesn't mean you don't deal with your trauma. It doesn't mean that people aren't responsible for it. It doesn't mean that life dealt you a bad hand and that you just have to deal with it. It doesn't mean any of that, but it doesn't mean you get to go then and, and take someone's life away. Right. Exactly. Wow. Matt, that was so good. 
Thank you. I was so nervous about doing this one, especially because yeah. I didn't want to take too much time. I'm surprised we stayed in sort of the same time frame we normally do. Um, yeah. Even with your shortened episode. So thank God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay. I feel like we could talk about that for like a hundred more hours, but I think we should probably wrap it up. Yeah. Did you have any final thoughts or do you want to go to our grades of the episode? Let's go to our grades of the episode. Okay. I feel like... Yeah, let's go to our grades of the episode. Let's do it. Watchability, I'm going to give it a C plus. It wasn't a bad episode. There wasn't anything that jumped out to me as like really, really problematic like there usually is. Mm-hmm. And as far as like how they dealt with the issue, given that they were doing it literally like while it was happening, C minus, like mm-hmm. they did okay. It like it was basically the same story, but with a different a different ending like basically the show chose to do the ending that the sons were trying to sell in real life essentially yeah one of them anyway yeah i agree i would i would give the show i'm actually going to give it a bit of a higher grade i would give the episode like a b like a solid b i actually liked the episode i didn't see anything too troubling um even like grievy and logan weren't to discussing this episode <laughs> yes <laughs> there was like actually good detective work in some yeah. moments and they didn't yeah. have to get craigan to tell them to you know get in their car and drive out to there detect yeah <laughs> um, so i'll give it a b and then covering up the true crime it's hard like i said like we both said it's it happened between trials right. so it's right. more about like the i guess the law part of it yeah um i would say i'll give it like a a C plus. I don't yeah. think there was anything glaringly wrong about it yeah. or off. I thought it was yeah. a little random. Some of the things, yes, how the they KGB thing. There the was KGB a moment thing where was they weird. It was super weird, and there was a moment where they were like, "Let's pressure them using their immigration status," which oh, was like yeah. that moment. I was like, "Fuck you!" But yeah, um, you know, I'm glad like, it turned up that it didn't work. <laughs> right, like later also, the next scene. Yes, <laughs> dead end. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, great job. If you are a listener and you would, if you have any thoughts about this episode and you enjoyed the condensed recap of the episode and the slightly longer description of the crime or anything like that, if you have any thoughts, any feedback, please feel free to email us. Even if it's just to say, I really enjoy listening. Uh, We love getting emails from people. So feel free to do that. And as always, rate, review, and subscribe. And, you know, if you have any connections to any of these events, like you lived in the area and you remember how it affected you, or, you know, like you, my teacher was questioned or it affected my life in this way, you know, whatever <laughs> yeah. it is, like if you yeah. have some sort of memory from your, your experience of how you experienced this true crime, or even if it's like us and it was like, oh, this was one of the ones that I remember that got me into this. And yeah. you want to share um, that, send it in. Also, we'll read it on the air if you'd like. And yeah. Yeah. And we'll see you next week. All right. Bye. Bye.